This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So this, this chapter is amazing, right? It's about how God is amazing. That, the, the, the title of this, uh, of this sermon, if, if there is one, is, uh, is that God is awesome. And if you take one message away from today, take away that God is awesome. And you can zone out now. Or if you're just zoning in, we're in a series called The Messiah and Isaiah, and God is awesome. Uh, but God is awesome. He tells us a lot about how he's awesome. He tells it to the Israelites within this particular context, and that's, that's the context that we're going to drill down into because uh, we believe that this message is for us, right? We know from history that, that Isaiah had this prophetic message from God which he was giving to people 150 years ahead of when he was born. That's incredible as it is, but we know he's giving it to us as well because Jesus is referenced in it, and we are the people who are living in the benefit of having had Jesus come. So it's important for us to understand what the message is uh, and to try and soften our hearts so that we can hear that God is awesome in a way that the Israelites did not hear it. And that the key to that, the key to the fact that the Israelites didn't hear it, uh, is idolatry, really. It was, it was idolatry that got them exiled. If you remember uh, anything about the first 39 chapters, and again, I'd, I'd recommend going and watching that video, idolatry was a big deal for them, right? The Jews, the people of God, worshipped images and other gods. We're told that Judah loved idols. In, in Isaiah 2, we're told their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands. And in Isaiah 10, God said, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images, see idols, as I dealt with Samaria, which is Israel, who's already in exile at this point, and her idols. They love idols so much that God allows Assyria to attack them, which is the message for uh, Isaiah's preaching or, or the context uh, to the first 39 chapters. Then they allow Babylon to come and raise Jerusalem to the ground. That's the first time it will happen in the history of Babylon and take the Jews into exile with them in Babylon. And now they're in Babylon, which is a god that worships, a country that worships foreign gods uh, and is filled with idols too. And Isaiah mentions idols. He mentions idols uh, in, in, the, in, in chapter 40, the start of his second section, in the context of God is great. It's, it's kind of that middle one. We've got God is great in the world. He's better than the nations. Idols being the middle of the fifth one. Uh, then it's rulers, and then it's back out to the universe again. But he mentions idols. But what's interesting is he doesn't really spend any time dissing idols when he mentions them. He just kind of mentions them. He sa- it's almost like he's just kind of like doing a national geographic description of idolatry. He says, uh, to whom then will you, like, uh, will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Uh, an idol. And we put an exclamation mark, because we assume it must be uh, uh, it must be a, a sarcastic comment almost here. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman uh, to set up an idol that will not move. It's like Isaiah doesn't feel the need to say that idolatry is stupid when you compare it to God. It's like he doesn't feel like, you know, here's powerful God and here's idolatry. Which one do you think if you're going to compare them wins? And it reminds me of um, uh, the story earlier in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. The, uh, the Israelites have been disobeying God and he allows them to uh, lose in a battle to the Philistines. The Philistines took with them the Ark of the Covenant, which has the law in it. It's very holy to them. They keep it at the center of their temple. Uh, the Philistines win the battle and they take the Ark from them. And the Israelites 
like, oh no, like God has left us, but actually God has already taken his hand away from them so that they would lose that battle. They take the ark, the Philistines, they're pretty chuffed with themselves, and they put the ark in the temple of their own god, Dagon, uh, or this statue of this god, Dagon, uh, and then they go out and party. And what happens overnight is that Dagon, this statue of Dagon, just falls forward uh, before the ark of a covenant. And the next day, the Philistines come in and they're like, oh no, Dagon has fallen over. Get back up, you god. You're meant to be a god. Like, dust him down. It's okay. Dagon's still good. He's still god. He's still winning. And then overnight, Dagon falls over again, and this time cracks into three pieces, and it's like coming back in there like, no, Dagon, you are a god. Get back up again. You're acting like a toddler. But it, it is, it's ridiculous when you compare. You know, it's not like, it's not like this statue of Dagon came down from the heavens, and they're like, oh my goodness, it's not just a statue. It's like, you know the guy who made that. Like, it's just a statue. It's ridiculous when you think about idolatry as this statue which you or someone you know has made with their hands. You know the raw material behind it. It's not solid gold. It's like got wood underneath it, and then it's hollow inside it to compare that with the power of a living God. And Isaiah feels like he doesn't need to do that. It feels ridiculous, right? So when we compare idolatry that way, it feels ridiculous. But one of the hard things when we try and apply the Old Testament to our lives is it can sometimes feel like such a different time. Like, the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago, so that's long enough. But the Old Testament was written a long time before that, and because of that, sometimes it can feel archaic, or it feels like, well, their lives, the world was in such a different place uh, that it's really hard to kind of, like, compare that for application. But, and I feel like idolatry is one of those things, because when you compare it to kind of, like, these big wooden statues of gods or something, that does feel ridiculous. I can testify, guys, that I do not have a god of Dagon in my house. I do not have any wooden statues that I bow down to and worship. I don't have any idols like that. Um, so how do we culturally associate this message to us to hear what it is that God's saying to us today? Because I do think he's got something to say to us in idolatry. Wikipedia, that fount of all knowledge, which is probably a kind of like knowledge idol uh, in its own right, uh, backs this up really. It talks about idolatry as uh, the worship of an idol, great, and an idol is, uh, kind of like a physical uh, object uh, or an image of something. So it backs up this idea that it is a thing, that it's a golden calf or that it's a statue of Dagon. But actually, that's not what idolatry is, the center of idolatry. The cent- what idolatry is, the root of idolatry, is loving something more than loving God. It's loving something more than loving God. And when you realize that, idolatry or the message that God has on idolatry for us becomes applicable to us. In the Old Testament, idolatry feels weird because they're all worshipping a statue. And you're like, why are you worshipping a statue? That's just crazy. But actually, we believe as Christians that God made us all in his image and we believe that he made us all to worship. He made us all to worship him because that's the best thing for us. So we believe that humankind has this necessity of worshipping. So we worship something, right? In the Old Testament, you had the people of God, the Israelites, and they knew who God was, so they worshipped him. But then you also had the Babylonians who didn't know who God was, so they worshipped this other thing. But, but in the Old Testament times, they all did believe that there were was some kind of like higher being so they were trying to aim their worship towards something whether it's this statue maybe it's this statue maybe it's the sun god Ra because the sun is so powerful whatever it is but they're worshiping the man-made in our time it's no longer a given that everyone believes in a higher being right in the UK I think we probably assume that most people it's almost like the default now is that people probably don't believe that there's a higher being but we're still made to worship so people still have to worship something in our culture now we know who that is we know that it's the one true God Jesus but if it's not then you're still worshipping something, and it tends to be man-made as well. So it's kind of, you know, it's, well, I worship science, or I worship uh, my own reason, or I worship, you know, our ability to say what's wrong and right, not God's, because I don't believe there is a God, uh, or whatever it is. But we're worshipping the band man-made. The Babylonians and the disobedient Jews have idols because they were made to worship, but so are we. So what are our idols? I have recognized a number of idols in my life over the last few years. I'll share a couple with you. Sports were probably a bit of an idol in my life for a while. 
uh, for far too long, like how Man United did, really affected my mood. But the Lord, through his graciousness, has relieved me of that by five lean years of supporting Man United. So I feel like that's gone a bit now. But other sports still pop in. I still get affected by it. That sounds like a silly one. Food. Food probably sounds like another silly one. I can't believe that, that this is true, but this is now true of me. Food's such a big deal for me. Like I, you know, I go through periods of fasting. I am struggling with fasting at the moment. If I come home in the evening, I'm like, I've got a free evening, free evening. That's probably like another idol as well, so it's like a double whammy. And I'm like, what's for dinner? I'm like, oh, I'm fasting. What's the point in this free evening? Like, I'm so sad. Food has become this thing for me. Weekends. This is a genuine one. We can, those ones are kind of like funny, but sad. Weekends, weekends is one that became genuine for me a couple of years ago, I realized. I'd be in the middle of the week, you know, it's a Wednesday. Oh, I feel so busy at work, and oh, I've got a meeting this evening. Oh, I'm one tomorrow. Another work meeting on Friday. It's two and a half days to the weekend, and when it's the weekend, everything will be okay. I'm just lifting up this weekend. Actually, it's not even just weekend. It's kind of like a free weekend where I have family time. It's like, oh, no, but this weekend I'm serving a midsummer fiesta. And then it's church on Sunday, and then after church we've got people around, and I'm so people doubt, so okay, when's the next Saturday? Oh, the next Saturday we're away with my parents, great. And then maybe it's a Saturday after that, ah, oh, okay, so it's 16 days until the next free time. Like I'm worshipping my free time, like I'm worshipping weekends. Other people's opinions of me, other people's opinions of me, how often do like, I make changes or make decisions or not do something or do something because I care so much about other people's opinions? Myself. I think I sometimes must be my own idol sometimes because I care more about my own name than I do about God's name. The reality is, unless you've got a golden calf in your back garden or taken like a really wrong turn on the internet and ends up worshipping something that is kind of like a classic idol, then in all, you're you know, fully sanctified and as per Jesus, worshipping the Lord with all your heart, soul and mind. The reality is we probably all do have some idols in our lives. And the chances are, because they're not a golden calf, it's something more like a concept or like a person or something that doesn't feel bad in and of itself. It might, be, it might be something that's actually quite good. It might be something to do with enjoyment or it might be trust. It tends to be where our hearts are. That's what the Bible says. It says where you store up treasure for yourself, that's where your hearts will be. Where, where our hearts are, if it's not God, if it's not Jesus, if it's not an eternity with him, then often that reveals where it is uh, an idol. And I'm going to go through a couple more things. And what I want us to do is just think about where this applies into our lives. Now, what I'm not saying is let's every Friday Friday, get together and talk about all the idols in our life. Like, oh, I've spotted a new one. Like, if you focus just on the sin, you are never going to hear, you know, God is the one who saves. There's, it would be crazy to spend, like, to, to do this as a regular thing. But let's just think about this for a moment, because this is going to lead us into the, the low point, but then we're going to lead back out into the high point uh, at the end of it. So stick with it. And what I'm conscious of is a lot of the things that I think are modern-day idols or idols in my life are things that we do talk about, actually. I think quite often in church we talk about Cheltenham being a place of comfort and being obsessed with... Well, what things is Cheltenham obsessed with, do we normally say? Race course, money, education. Yeah, uh, Cheltenham Town FC, Gloucester RFC, all of that stuff. Yeah, lo- lots of stuff. We talk about that stuff. But quite often when we talk... What we're really talking about is idolatry. What we tend to talk about when we talk about in church is kind of like comfort. Like, let's try and swim against the culture. Let's live for God, not for any of these things. But we are talking about idolatry. And what happens when we talk about things that are modern-day idols in our lives is we caveat it with this kind of like... It's almost become like a Christian lingo phrase of those things aren't bad in and of themselves. It's like you can't talk about idolatry without saying, like, don't get me wrong, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. And these things aren't bad in and of themselves. But let's just hold that. I just want to release myself from having to say that every time, like I mentioned something that could be an idol. I'm not saying that enjoyment is bad, okay? Joy comes from the Lord. 
it's good. I'm not saying that trust is bad, trust comes from the Lord. I'm not saying that family is bad, job's bad, education. I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad. So I'm releasing myself now, snip, 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 from that from necessity to have to, after every time, say it. I'm not saying that it's bad in and of itself, but just, just let's use this as an opportunity to think about it. Um, you know, what do you spend your time on? <laughs> what, do you spend your, what do you spend your money on? Could someone look at your, a calendar of your week or your bank balance and say, I know who this person's idols are, I know that he's living for Jesus, or, or does it look the same as anyone else's? Just a thought. That's true for me as well. What makes you most anxious? What are you most protective of? <clears throat> I read this really challenging article, here we go, uh, by a guy called John Piper, who's uh, an American preacher, um, and uh, he, he basically picks up on, on where things that we enjoy, good things, not bad in and of themselves, there, I said it again anyway, uh, can become idolatrous to us, and here are some kind of like questions as to how you might see that happening in your life. And um, I find this really challenging. So it might be that an area of enjoyment in your life is becoming idolatrous when it's disproportionate to the worth of what is desired. So when you've got great desire for something that is not a great thing. Okay, so free time would be like an example of something I've done in my life. Like, oh, like, God, 16 days until my next free time. Like, I just long for my free time. Like, Lord, I know technically you're in these next 15 days, but I don't care. I want my free time. No, 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 no. Like, God is more important than that. Do I care more about that? Sleep is one for me at the moment. I'm so tired all the time. God, I know you're with me in my exhaustion, but if I could only have sleep, I would be a better worshiper of you. You see, you just see, like, it's, it's a greater desire for something than deserves that level of greatness. Something of enjoyment might be becoming idolatrous in your life when it doesn't awaken a sense that the giver is better than the gift. Does my family or my job or my house cause me to thank God or do I care about them more than I care about God? Something of enjoyment might be becoming idolatrous in you when it's starting to feel like a right and our delight in it is becoming a demand. Like we come into this world with nothing, right? And then we leave it with nothing, as well. And, and the idea is we say thank you to God for all that he provides us in between. But like, how easy is it to let that slip? God, praying for so long to get a house, now I get a house. Oh, I don't care about money, but actually I need a bit more money to do my house. Oh, God, like, you know, I used to find it okay to just go on these little holidays, but now I see this person is going on this amazing holiday. Why can't I have that? It's kind of like that thing of like, you know, money in and of itself isn't evil. The Bible says that the, uh, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it's not money itself. And it's, it's kind of in that same way. Is there something that feels like it's become a right? It is my right. It is my right to have a job that I want because everyone else has got. It is my right to get that promotion because loads of other people might. I've been here for longer. It's my right to have that promotion. It's my right to have. How is that person earning more than me? That's not fair. How are they seem to be spending their money on whatever? It doesn't seem fair. It's my right. Final one. This really hit me. When a, a thing of enjoyment might be becoming idolatrous in your life, when the loss of it ruins our trust in the goodness of God. If it goes, if my health goes, if my family leaves me or their health goes, if my job gets taken from me, if my money gets taken from me, would I say, God, I'm now struggling to believe in you? Because it's like what happens is, you know, you, 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 in, your, in your Christian life, you're so, you, you love God, God, I love you, I just want to I I worship you my whole life, particularly if you maybe if you're on, uh, someone who came to the Lord before you had a lot of stuff like I was insofar as I was a student, so I hadn't, hadn't built up loads of stuff. Oh, God, I would love, I'd love to have a family in my life. Oh, I'd get a family. God, I'm so thankful for that family. Like, uh, you know, I've got this job and I'm not really that interested. God, I'd love to have this particular job. I just feel like it might be part of my calling. I get the job. God, I'm so thankful for it as well. And like, Lord, I've always wanted to be, you know, house feels like good stewardship. It feels like a good thing to do with money. I've always, will I be a person who gets, I do get a house. Oh, that's great. God, I'm so thankful. I'm going to serve you with all these things. I'm going to serve you. 
with all these things. Man, they're taking up so much of my time, though. You know, they're taking, oh, I just want to develop that house. Like, I really want to press into my career. And my family just takes up all of my sleep and, like, all of my fun time as well, all my free times on the weekend. And then suddenly these things end up secretly, subtly getting higher than God. So if one of them gets taken away from me, what do you do? If one of them gets taken away from me, it's like, no! You do, that is not the deal, God. Like, God, you are, yeah, yeah, you're still higher, but that, you have crossed a red line. God, you, you don't do that. You do not do that. And, and in that moment, I've become idolatrous because those things are more important to me than God. And those things are hard. I'm not saying that we should be happy. I'm not saying that it gets taken away like, woo, it doesn't matter, although Job, well, Job managed to do it a little bit. But it, the, the key is, like, that those things have become higher to me than God. Do you see that in that instance? It's bad. Why is idolatry bad? Idolatry is bad because it means that we love something more than we love God. Why is that bad? Because God calls us to love him with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. Is it because God is needy and he needs our love? No, it's because he knows what we need. If we do not love God with all of our hearts, souls, and our minds, we slip into idolatry. And if we slip into idolatry, then our perspective of God will change. Let's look at the Israelites as an example. Verse 27. It's this little crux moment in this chapter, which is primarily about the greatness of God in his own words. The Jews say, where is God when I need him? Okay, this, you know, he's, he says, why do you say, O Jews, what, O Jacob, O Israel? They say, my right is disregarded by my God. My way is hidden from the Lord. My way, my way is so bad. I've lost this job and I've lost this house. I'm assuming that my way is hidden from you, God, because you can't have been seeing it because it's been that bad. My right is disregarded by God. God, you are disregarding my right because my right is to all of those things. My right was to get those things and to keep them. You've disregarded my right. It becomes an issue of trust for the Israelites now. We're made to worship something. We're made to worship God. But if we don't, then it's like we end up not believing him. No, I can't wait on the Lord. It's not turning out the way expected. Here's my new... I, I, do you know what, God? You took that away. I'm not sure I can believe in a God like that. I'm really struggling. I'm, you know, I'm, I, to me, that doesn't sound like a loving God. I'm not sure if I can... I'm not sure if I believe in you anymore. Like I'm going to find whatever the new thing is. That's what it feels like is happening to the Jews here. Idolatry changes our perspective on God. This is why God was willing to go to the nth degree to rid it from the Jews. Idolatry rots our hearts to the awesomeness of God, and it makes our view of God too small. John Piper again says, in the church, this is in the church, this isn't just in the world, in the church, our view of God is so small instead of so huge, so marginal instead of so crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing. So idolatry is bad, we probably all do it. It comes from a wrong opinion of God, but it leads to an even worse perspective of God. So how does God respond? By giving us what we need. He gives us a bigger view of God. Now, often the Bible, when it uh, talks about God, when it gives us an example of what God's like, it compares it with things that we understand. So if you read the description of God in Revelation, it's all about like, oh, his, his hair was white like wool. You know, his, his feet were like bronze. His eyes were like fire. He sat on a chair, which looked a bit like this metal and this metal. God, in his own words, tells us that he is beyond comparison. And we find, when God tells us, the real perspective of God, which is him himself speak about himself, that he is great. It's not just that he's great, though, is it? It's not just like, you know, do you like God? Like, yeah, he's great. It's like, no, he's awesome. He is awesome. And maybe, you know, maybe the word awesome is used too much. Whatever it is, don't let the language of a day steal from you. Whatever superlative it is, you need to put God on a higher level than everything else. He is awesome. Verse 12, these are God's words about himself. Uh, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You might have seen in the news a couple of weeks ago that they made uh, an exploratory dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest point of the ocean. So they went seven miles down. That's the deepest they've ever gone. They found a plastic bag. Uh, there you go. Um, third time humanity has made it to the depths of the Mariana Trench. 
he holds the waters in the hollow of his hands. Like, you know, you see that little bit? No, you can't see it. That's where the Mariana Trench is. Come on, he's bigger than this. He's awesome. The stars, verse 26, we sang about them this morning. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. The Babylonians would have got this, right? The Babylonians were astrologers, so the Israelites would have been in and around this kind of like idolatry then. You know, when you see a clear sky at night, you see about 2,500 stars, which, you know, that's quite a lot. That sounds like a lot to me. That sounds like, you know, the early day astrologers would have really struggled to like count them. Like, did you count that one? We're going to have to start from the left again. Like, 2,500 stars. That is one one millionth of what's in our galaxy. One one millionth. And our galaxy is one of any number of galaxies. Mathematicians, classic mathematicians, have thrown themselves at trying to work out how many stars there might be in the universe, which is infinite. So it's kind of like an irrelevant question. But whatever math that they have used has found that they believe that there might be seven followed by 22 zeros. That means that for every grain of sand on the Earth, there are 10,000 stars. He made this and he sustains this. This is an awesome God. Verse 13, no one shows him counsel, we're told, which is in direct uh, Contrast to the uh, creation story, the Babylonians, their Babylonian god of creation, Marduk, had to ask another god for consultation before he created the world. God doesn't need any consultation. He's eternal. Psalm 90, before the mountains were born or you were brought forth the whole earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and his word endures forever. Verse 8, God is greater than our idols. He's greater than the idols of the Old Testament. He's greater than our idols now. Our idols are like, they're deaf, they're blind, they're dumb, they're fleeting. Our God is all-seeing all hearing. His word endures forever and he reigns forever. So God gives us what we need, a bigger view of him. What else does he do? He allows our circumstances to point us to him. The Israelites have engaged with idolatry, which like a weed planted next to good seeds, chokes them, stealing their light in the earth. And as we saw in the video, you might remember, at the end of it all, the Israelites say, my right is disregarded by God. My heart remains hard towards God. But these guys knew despair. Okay, they were in exile. And we might be able to relate with that, whether we've had like a big issue, like exile, uh, or, you know, or death, or illness, or whatever it is, or whether, we've, whether we're talking about a small issue, like when Liverpool lose the Champions League final next week. We've all had a moment where we thought, there goes my life. There goes my happiness. You know, maybe it was a job I was looking for, or maybe it was someone I was pursuing a relationship and it ends up not working out, whatever it is. All I can look forward to now is one long, uh, long, long death sentence. But God wants them to see the futility of idolatry in an even more idolatrous nation. He allows them to be persecuted so they can see the idols for what they are. For they are. Phil Moore, a Bible teacher, says, When all human hopes have let us down, we might be ready for our, the only real salvation that exists. Who, who here doesn't know who's followed God? That it's sometimes in the moments of like the depths of despair that it feels like when you turn to God. Sometimes he allows that to happen. We might be able to empathize with this. And I'm not, again, I'm not particularly talking about like hashtag first world problems. You know, the power of God isn't for you to definitely get that carpet which is going to hold together your front room or for your team to win or for whatever it is. Um, I think this was a guy called Alec Moyer, but I wasn't sure, so I didn't write it up. But he says, uh, God will not underwrite our worldliness with his power. He never promises for soaring strength of eagles so we can go on grunting in the style of Babylon. Now, some of those things are not bad in and of themselves. And, um, uh, you know, that can reveal idolatry in our heart as well. But primarily what we're talking about here is real problems. But we do have real problems. We do have real problems. You know, I know that we do. I know that we do in this room. I know that we do in this church. We've got people who get sick. You know, people die. That happens. People lose jobs. People lose money, lose friends. They make fools of themselves. They trust and invest in the wrong things. Verse 2, that message of comfort, he says to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your, your warfare or your hardship is open. Life is warfare. Life is tough. But whenever our problems are big or perceived, we will find that anything we trust in but God will let us down. Trust God. He is big and he saves. 
God is eternal. This is that guy, like more again. God is eternal. Okay, we've seen it already. He's everlasting. We are in this little slot called right now and panic, but we don't need to. God is working his purpose out in his own way, at his own pace, without our hurried, nervous desperation. And he does it in a personal way, okay? Idolatry, bad, changes our perspective on God. God gives us what we need, which is a bigger view of God, and sometimes he allows our circumstances to do it. And the risk is, you know, I mean, star stats don't really do it for me, so I probably got a couple of those wrong, so I don't need any facts checking on it. But you could, you know, you could think, like, God is so big. Okay, I get, well, maybe I believe that he holds all the waters in the hollow of his hands, and you can't even see the Mariana Trench. But surely that means that he can't see what problems are going on in my life right now. But that's wrong. The wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. He is not aloof to our problems. This is an awesome God who comes to us in the midst of our problems. Our God saves, and he is our strength. If you wait on your idols all day long, they will never save you from your exile or your wilderness or the valley you're in or the mountains that are facing you, whatever that is. But our God raises us on wings like eagles. He is not aloof. And he is not uh, faceless. Verse 3 to 5 again. You know... A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is, who is this preparation of John the Baptist in preparation for? It's for Jesus. It ushers in the good shepherd of verse 11, who we're told tends his flock, gathers the lamb in his arms, and carries them in his bosom, and gently leads those that are with young. This is the good shepherd. He is a faceless God who saves us. <clears throat> Idolatry is bad. It comes from a wrong perspective. But whether you kind of recognize that or not, that it speaks something about trust and desire in your lives, it leads to an even worse perspective of God in your life, which ultimately ruins everything for everyone. God is big. He allows circumstances to be part of our salvation, and he saves, and he brings comfort and good news. Comfort. Isaiah 40 comes straight after these... Re- if you read it next to, never, next to each other, this is why scholar, like some scholars wrongly I think, think that Isaiah might have been written by two people, partly because it's 150 years into the future, but we know that the, that the Bible is divinely given, so that kind of like, that's an easy thing for God to do, but partly because it goes from this really difficult message of judgment to this one of comfort and hope. Right after chapter 39, where the Jews are told that they're going to be taken into exile in Babylon and their nation is going to be smashed to the floor, he says to them, comfort, comfort, straight after the darkest moment of the pronouncement of doom. It's comfort. Comfort is not mollycoddling. It's not like, comfort, that's nice. Comfort is like from the Latin for strength, which means for. It means strengthen and support. And he says it twice, comfort, comfort, because sometimes we're like, yeah, yeah, difficult situation. Yeah, I hear comfort. But no, 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 no. Like strength and support, strength for today, strength for tomorrow. Our hearts need to hear this. Isaiah talks to the Judeans in 6th century BC, Assyria, but he also talks to us in 21st century AD. Discipline will end. Phil Moore again says, faith is not all struggles. It is also release and hope and new beginnings. God's deepest intention towards us is comfort. If the focus of Christianity were our sins, our future would shut down. Comfort, that is the fa- That's the center of this. Like Christianity uh, ultimately isn't about challenge. There's a lot of challenge. Uh, you know, I feel challenged by today. I feel challenged by lots of things by God. He just challenges. But it's not ultimately about challenge. It's ultimately about comfort and assurance that he has done it, that he has won it for us. Judah, your salvation is coming, but to us too, this is the good news. What is the good news? What is the good news of that comfort, comfort that you must prepare yourself for? Listen to this. Jerusalem, he's talking to Jerusalem, but he's talking to us too. Jerusalem, your hardship is ended. 
your iniquity, that's your sins, are pardoned, and you've received from the Lord's hand double for your sins, which means that for your sins you've, you've received a sacrifice in your place which frees you. What does that message sound similar to? The gospel, the good news. This is the good news for us. For ki- the good news that, that he's giving. It's like there's this short-term message that he's giving to the Jews who are in Babylon, but he's giving it to us as well who know that that scripture refers to Jesus. He's telling us the king is coming. The king will accomplish his purpose, and the glory of Jesus will be revealed to the whole world, and this we can be certain of. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us. That promise for Judah was talking about Cyrus, a future king, coming in, giving them religious freedom, and the fact that eventually they would get to return to Jerusalem. But for us, it means that Christ came, lived the perfect life, died for us, so that we might have access to God and ultimate peace and comfort. Comfort is coming to us because our God is awesome. Are you in exile today? Are you in the valleys? Does it feel like you've got mountains before you? Does it feel like you've recognized that your heart in some areas is given over to idolatry? Comfort is coming for you because our God is awesome. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.